Welcome to Sustain What, a series of conversations seeking solutions where complexity and consequence collide. That's basically on just about every sustainability frontier, from shaping a safer relationship with Earth's climate to building more civil online relationships with each other. As we say here in the Communication Initiative of the Columbia Climate School, the word sustainability has no meaning on its own. The first step towards success is to ask, sustain what, how, and for whom? This program contains audio highlights from hundreds of video webcasts, which you can explore on your own at j.mp slash sustainwhatlive. I'm Dale Willman, Associate Director of Columbia's Initiative on Communication and Sustainability. The webcast was created and is hosted most of the time by Andy Revkin, the longtime environmental journalist, sometime songwriter, and founding director of the initiative. Read his related dispatches at revkin.bulletin.com. And now, sustain what? Good afternoon, good morning, buenos dias, depending on where you are on this fast forward planet wrapped in a pandemic that's surging in some places and managed very well in other places uh, that's still suffused with deep uncertainty from the basic biology of the virus to the responses that can work or not work to the human responses to the responses. Uh, so it's like a perfect time to talk about deep uncertainty, consequential, but deep uncertainty. Uh, I'm Andy Revkin, the Earth Institute at Columbia University, where I run a new project, uh, an initiative on communication and sustainability. And today's show is, is synced up with the um, annual meeting of the Society for Decision-Making Under Deep Uncertainty. Now, as a journalist, I came late to this whole concept because journalists cover the news and the news is something that happened. And then you start to dig in on why it happened. And usually there's a thread of data uh, that leads you to um, some way to describe the situation. But journalists are really bad at covering risk. We're bad at looking at the future. Uh, I've had newsroom arguments with editors. I, one editor famously in 1996 or so, I was writing a piece about the future of the New York City water supply. And she said, is, I wrote it like I had written about 3,000 words because this is a big, important thing, right? And she said, isn't that a little much about something that we don't know yet? It was kind of like, isn't that a little ahead of the news? That was the term of art. Is that ahead of the news? And I thought, oh my God, isn't that what we're supposed to do? So, and here we are today. Uh, I've got some great experts from the society, which is technically meeting in um, Mexico. We will learn more about that in a second. And I'm showing an image uh, here from my dear departed friend, Mar Mario Molina, Nobel, Nobel Prize winner in chemistry, who uh, became famous for his work on the ozone layer helping us identify threats to it before the evidence was clear. Uh, and he used to use this slide as a way to introduce the idea that risk is hiding in, in plain sight sometimes and you start to fill in the pieces. But, but even that relates to like our normal sense of risk and how you manage it. This group is into this deeper phenomenon and that's what we'll talk about right now. So I have with us uh, David Groves from the Rand Corporation and you'll learn about him in a second. Alejandro Poiré, who is um, a, uh, at the, he's the Dean of the School of Government and Public Transformation at Tecnológico de Monterrey in Mexico City. 
and a former Secretary of Governance in the administration of former Mexican President Felipe Calderon. Julie Rosenberg, an economist with the World Bank, focused on sustainability, poverty alleviation, and climate. And the thing that threads through their work in these different contexts uh, at RAND, uh, David is also involved with climate resilience and uh, all kinds of other risk questions, is what do you do when you know you don't know certain things? My, my journey to this started <laughs> on a boat way before I was a journalist in the, in the uh, 70s. I was a young man in my early 20s. I ended up on a sailboat as the crew. And we got a box of books from another boat one day. And it had this book, The Dice Man, which it turned out, I didn't know this at the time, but it's like one of the major bestsellers. It's, it sold millions of copies. The author's real name is George uh, Cockcroft. He has a background in psychology. He was a professor. And the, the theme of the book was make your decision by rolling the dice, <laughs> literally roll the dice. And what you're going to hear about you know, shortly is very different ways of looking at that. The, the book, I got to get him on the show. He's, he's still around. Um, I, on that boat, I made a big mistake. There was one night and we were sailing in Greece and dark waters and a storm was coming and I was at the wheel and everyone else is asleep. Up ahead, there was one light that I knew was on a buoy. We had crappy maps. Our charts were really bad. We had scrimped. We didn't buy a detailed chart for that one passage because we were going to go through it really quickly. So in the middle of the night, one in the morning, I'm going, do I go port or starboard? <laughs> and I guessed wrong and ended up behind the boat, had to fix it. We didn't die or anything, but uh, the boat was pretty wrecked. Uh, Murray Galman, who I got to know as a physicist, a Nobel Prize winner, used to talk about the the benefits of taking a crude look at the whole. He made it into an acronym, CLAW. And, and I think there's some merit there. So I started to understand as a journalist, well, there are some practices, there are things you can do to start to navigate complexity. And um, the climate story that I've been writing about for 35 years, at a certain point, it became clear that elements of it are crystal clear, like greenhouse gases work, the world's warming. But then there's all these deeply uncertain things, I began drawing curves, like my spiky curve there for CO2 and warming was like saying, there's not a tail on this, we know this. But there were the things that were their most consequential, like the pace of sea level rise, what's happening with hurricanes, they're durably unclear. We know, in fact, I would argue that for sea level rise, you know we're not gonna know much more by 2050 than we know today on how fast it's gonna rise. So what do you do? And, and there are these interesting scientists like uh, Jerome de van der Schuys, who are writing about the uncertainty monster. And I got focused on this question of getting comfortable with it. Like, what is this? How do I write about this as a journalist? And at the same time, 2010, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change hired a consultancy, a communication consultants, to tell them some ways to write their reports better. And the, the advice they got was, Below is a list of words that mean one thing to scientists and something else to the public. To lower the risk of being misunderstood, avoid them. Ask a media expert for alternatives. And on the list were uncertainty and risk. So don't talk about uncertainty. It was essentially these you know, well-paid communication consultants uh, message to the IPCC. So here we are. Um, this is the 2020 conference of the uh, Society for Decision-Making Under Deep Uncertainty. I was invited to speak at one of their conferences in DC four years or so ago. And to me, it was like undiscovered territory. As a journalist, I was like, wow, this is so cool. 
there's a room full of people here whose job is to navigate complexity, uncertainty, the known unknowns, knowns, the known unknowables, and to make something happen that's less than awful. And every time we get immersed in a situation like we are now, where we have an enduring pandemic, political turmoil, social unrest in the United States, um, on a warming climate, a warming, a warming planet, what do you do? So I encourage folks to follow them, uh, Deep Uncertainty, at is the uh, ID on Twitter. And the hashtag for the uh, meeting that's just started today, I think, is DMDU2020. And you're gonna learn about them now from them. <laughs> so this is when uh, I'll bring in uh, my, my guests. And I hope you're uh, hanging in there. How are you all doing in this uncertain world? <laughs> Julie, how's life? Hi, life is good. Yeah, I um, I went through a, a lot of different changes this year in addition to the pandemic. So it was a interesting way of applying DMDU methods to my own life. But apart from that, um, I've been I've been part of this DMDU society since the beginning. I think we had the very first meeting at the World Bank maybe in 2013. Or 14 before creating the society, Dave was there too, um, and it's been uh, it's been a great group of people to work with because we all come from different different backgrounds, we all work on different themes, but we all agree that we usually don't know a lot of things, but that yet uh, we can focus on what we can do, focus on what's the best available information and on learning and inclusion, which I think is uh, a very big part of the values of the societies and the values of people there. And, you come, and you come at this in large part through that lens of um, poverty alleviation. Yes, exactly. Inclusion, I assume. I started working on climate change mitigation for my PhD. So I was using these methods for looking at how to reduce CO2 emissions. But then at the World Bank, I've been using it much more at the local level, working with uh, governments on the design of policies and infrastructure investments uh, and poverty alleviation, of course. And have you always felt that this is a tough sell? We'll get to this with Alejandro particularly, but you know, Everyone in these decision-making landscapes, corporate, government, they want to know, and they definitely are risk-averse. So we'll talk about that more. But is is that what drew you to the need for this community you're in? It is. Um, it is a tough sell, but at the same time, especially with climate change, it's become easier and easier to sell. I think people realize, decision maker realize that. Yes, we don't know what's going to happen with climate change. We know some things, but there are lots of things that we don't know. And yet there's a lot of decisions that needs to that need to be made now. Uh, very consequential decisions like uh, long term infrastructure investments and and energy policies. And and if we come with solutions for dealing with this uncertainty, I think there's also a relief. So. There's acceptance that there's uncertainty, but also there's a relief when we say, well, actually we can help you deal with this. That's good. Um, David, we'll get to you in a second and then you can dive in deeper on the origins of the society, et cetera. But Alejandro, just quickly, 
if you could give a sketch of your path to this arena, that would be great. You know, how, how, where did you come from that brought you to this? Yeah. No, no, thank you, Andy. Uh, hello, Julie, David. Uh, it's a, it's a great opportunity to be here and to be the hosts of, uh, this conference. Um, I've been an academic and a public servant. I mean, half of my uh, professional career uh, in, in both sides, on both sides of the, of the spectrum, if one, one might call it that way. And uh, um, as I was uh, uh, taking charge as Dean of the, the School of Government and Public Transformation in Tecnológico de Monterrey, I, I was convinced that it was just imperative uh, to, to have uh, a very solid analytical uh, background and framework for an increasingly complex world, but I really didn't know the tools or the methods. Um, and I just visited RAND because a former student of mine um, uh, uh, invited me there and I started looking at what uh, graduate students and uh, faculty were doing there. And it was just amazing to uh, see not, not just the types of uh, policy issues that these methods were dealing with, but in particular how, uh, um, uh, uh, comprehensive uh, these tools were, uh, in particular to address the kinds of problems that as, after being in government uh, for six years uh, during the Calderon administration, I was so convinced that on the one hand, the problems were really complicated and complex and increasingly so. And on the other hand, it was so important to uh, develop uh, analytical tools uh, to uh, assess this complexity, but also give us the ability to say, hey, maybe we are in a, uh, in, in a scenario in which if we do these sets of uh, uh, interventions, maybe we're going to end up uh, in a different position. And, and I think um, I started to learn about this. I was, uh, I was a keynote speaker uh, uh, a couple of years ago and um, it, it, it just so happens that our school uh, is, uh, is very uh, um, has been has been uh, working for a couple of decades now, but is is very uh, uh, keen on making sure that our students have both the analytical and technical uh, capacities to to engage with these very complex problems, uh, urgent problems, but also the leadership skills that are needed. Uh, to make this tough sell that we're talking about, Andy, and to and to offer policymakers uh, paths that are not just going to be short term, that are not just going to be quick fixes, but that actually give a sense that we are headed in a, in a direction where where the outcomes that we care for uh, are somewhat or substantially, ideally, more likely. No, uh, so so that's a little bit of, of the story behind. Uh, and I've, and I've become a fan, and I'm, I mean, I'm just an apprentice of the models, of course, but I, I think it's very important. We have had significant successes in terms of public policy in, in Mexico based on DMDU models, uh, in terms of reorganizing frameworks, in terms of just not, not just thinking about problems, the problem of water supply in the city of Monterrey. Um, it was a massive political problem just a few years ago, very controversial because of corruption allegations and so on and so forth. We were able to develop these methods uh, uh, alongside state and local authorities, civil society, so on and so forth. And we haven't heard about it uh, uh, in the news because we have a framework in place. We know what the options are. We have a portfolio of investment over time. And uh, it's just one example of how these tools, these uh, methods uh, 
I mean, certainly they do not solve the problem of not knowing in which world we're going to live, uh, but they do give us a clearer sense of how to communicate uh, policy alternatives and whether we are actually making progress or not. Yeah, well, I think we all need a dose of that right now. Uh, <laughs> so, so let's hear, now David, uh, you're at RAND. Um, if you could sort of yep. step back and for those who aren't familiar with what to me was a fairly novel idea that there's uncertainty has different flavors, different colors. There's, there's model uncertainty, there's data uncertainty. Just, just give us the basic steps and what we're talking about when you, how do you first interrogate sure. this, this, the landscape to know even which way to think about going? Yeah, no, thank you so much. Um, so well, just, just briefly on my background, I've been with Rand since, uh, 2001 and, and really began, um, you know, learning about the, you know, thinking about decision-making under deep uncertainty before it was really called <laughs> decision-making under deep uncertainty. Um, I was fortunate enough to work with, with some of the pioneers of these methods, uh, Rob Lempert, Stephen Popper, Steve Bankus and others. Um, and, and, you know, for my graduate work and my PhD, what I was really interested in is trying to understand, you know, if we think about some of these longer term, you know, climate related questions, um, you know, do we need to think differently about how to uh, account for the uncertainty uh, related to climate change? So what, what I was interested in is, you know, water managers generally make their plans based on their understanding of their, you know, hydrology, when it rains, when it doesn't, how hot it is, et cetera, um, and what the needs are of the communities that they serve. But, you know, at that time, the threat of climate change is, you know, well, well recognized by that time. But, um, as it is today, it's still something that's difficult to predict. We can't say with any confidence that it's going to be precisely one degree warmer in this region or 10 to 10 percent drier in this region. And we don't know what that we don't understand exactly what that's going to do for water resources, stream flow, et cetera. So for the water planner, when they're faced with that kind of uncertainty, they don't have the tools. You know, their standard tools are based on historical record and and, you know, experimentation of, you know, engineering, uh, you know, properties, et cetera. And so, you know, essentially they leave they, they left climate change out of their planning at that time. And so, you know, my early work and, and, and colleagues and, um, you know, was to think about what's an alternative way. And so some of the so the methods behind DMDU are all about providing that alternative way. And, and what, it, what it boils down to is rather than saying, okay, well, we can, you know, estimate how likely different potential futures are because we have experimental data or good knowledge of how the system works. And, you know, because we can't estimate precisely how likely things are, let's just explore the future. Let's use our models to just do many, many, many what if experiments. You know, what if it gets a little warmer? What if it gets a little drier in this area? What if demand rises more than we thought? What if, you know, a technological breakthrough and water conservation comes comes available in five years? And, and just try to understand what the range of possibilities are. Then the, you know, the basic DMDU methods and, uh, you know, provide some structured approaches and tools for understanding you know, where are your risks or what risks um, do your do your decisions or policies face? So if you're a water utility and you're like, oh, I need more water because I think demand's going to grow. Uh, so in the Monterey, Mexico case, they were considering a really big pipeline, uh, you know, conveyance facility to bring water up from the south to meet that demand. Well, a DMDU 
look at that problem said, well, what are the risks to that? What if that water isn't going to be available? What if the demand is going to be less than is needed to justify the expenses? And, uh, you know, and, and basically try to figure out what would happen under all these different combinations of possibilities. And then once we understand that, then we can look for what we call robust solutions. So a robust solution is one which will perform well regardless of how the future is going to unfold. And, and I can say a little bit more about this in the context of COVID in a minute. Um, but, but so that, but just to wrap up, uh, you know, this uh, information about, about um, DMDU methods. So the methods help provide the, uh, identify these robust solutions. And generally they, they include things that we should and can do now, even though we don't know how the future is going to unfold. We sometimes call these low regret decisions, but these are the things that decision makers need to know now and, and, and need to act on now. So in Monterey, it's, it's understanding that they don't need to decide to do this very large, expensive um, you know, conveyance facility for water. Instead, they can do some smaller groundwater projects and invest in efficiency. And that's what's needed now. And that will put them on solid footing going forward. So these kinds of general methods can be applied across all sorts of different sectors. And that's what this uh, annual meeting is really all about. So the, it sounds like there's a rubric essentially. So someone comes to you with a problem and you say, well, here's how you can break it down. Yeah. Let me just show yeah. you an example that comes to mind. I, I've written a lot about water and climate change and, and both paleoclimate studies, meaning looking back in time and uncertain models lead you to some really interesting situations. This is a few years old, but the modeling, as far as I know, is still pretty equivocal on whether a critical part of the African continent is going to get wetter or drier as CO2 heats the global climate. So if you know you don't know that that band of countries south of the Sahara is going to get wetter or drier, some people would say, well, well, we don't know. But I have a feeling you would all dive in and say, oh, that's we can work with that. So what, what comes yeah. to mind? Well, well, I can I can uh, take the first crack at this because, oh, sorry. No, no, I was going to say, and Julie, uh, from the, the perspective of development too. Yeah, let, let me let me just say one word because I think it'll tee right into Julie because um, we did some work with the, with the World Bank on looking at this very question in the context of Africa and the great, you know, the uncertainties around climate. Is their proposed infrastructure plan, you know, robust or not? And and, and essentially, what you find in a lot of areas um, that you know some of the proposed very large um, hydropower dams, so that uh, you know for water supply and, and hydropower, actually are really really risky because if you end up in the world on the right hand side of your screen where it dries out, then all of a sudden the benefits of this very very expensive and destructive project don't pan out. And and I know Julie can expand in lots of other areas, um, so I'll pass it over to her. Yeah, so Julie, again, um, I know the world, This I think this was actually a World Bank model, if I remember correctly. Uh, yeah, World Bank. <laughs> so, so you know, knowing that many parts of the world have these questions like that, um, what's the method for um, not just like calculating, but, well, but then selling that to decision makers too? It, it's interesting. So the method is what Dave was describing. It's instead of trying to it's i have a lot of colleagues who when they're faced with this climate change information ask okay but what is the official model that the government wants to use because maybe yeah. the government has a model in that case we can choose this one 
and design based on this one. And what we're trying to say is, please don't do that. That's extremely dangerous. Even if the government has a preferred model and they've done some what they call downscaling of climate impacts at the local level with that model, we still should look at all the other ones because there's no way to tell that one model is actually more accurate than another one for predicting future climate. So we keep using the whole range and we look for investments that we can do today that will perform in an acceptable manner, whatever happens. But what's really interesting is that, so you can do that relatively easily looking at climate change uncertainty, but then if you add other types of uncertainty, it becomes a whole different story. Especially on hydropower, we did a, an interesting pilot in Nepal where we were looking at there, we were, so we were looking at how to design a series of hydropower dams. And the uncertainty there is not so much on, is there gonna be more or less water, but how much more based on glaciers melting um, and, and a series of cascading effects. And the result of the analysis focused on the design of the infrastructure was well, actually, we should build much bigger dams because there's going to be a lot more water. But then when you start bringing in the financial analysis and the financial models and look at the uncertainty on those variables, then the biggest uncertainty, which was even higher than climate, was is Nepal going to be able to sell that water to India? Let's sell that electricity, not that water, because the, the objective of the dam was to sell electricity to India but they were negotiating those contracts and those prices. And actually the bigger dams could be from a technical point of view were the best ones, but from a financial and economic point of view were very risky. Um, so then you have to revise and, and that's what I like about DMDU as well, is that you're trying to always expand the range of uncertainties that, that you want to consider. You, usually climate change is a very good entry point because you show these kinds of graphs uh, that you have here on your screen. It's very telling. People understand that we don't know. But then little by little, you can add actually other uncertainties linked to socioeconomic factors and human behavior that are sometimes much more important than, than climate change for your decision. Yeah. And um, can I say just a remark on that? Just uh, yeah. one second. Um, I think uh, you know, Julie mentioned the, you know, bringing in other uncertainties. And, and this is something that, you know, all of, you know, DMDU practitioners are finding all the time is that it's, it's not usually just one uncertainty, like climate change, that is that is necessarily the, the only driver. And, and then, and because of this, you know, the DMDU methods are, are designed to really be highly participatory and work very closely with stakeholders and the decision makers. Um, you know, if you go to any of the talks that are going on right now in the society's meeting, you know, many of them start with, well, the first thing we did was we reached out to all the stakeholders that were interested in the problem and we did this very structured exercise of identifying the uncertainties, the things that people care about, which we call performance metrics, the different decisions that may be on the table and how these things all fit together, what are the relationships, what are the models. And this framework is, is very common across, you know, and, and very prevalent in DMDU because it provides the, an avenue for understanding what people are caring about so that can then be reflected in the analysis. So then the robust solutions at the end actually have relevance to you know, the decision makers and the context. 
And one of the things that we're trying to do this time in the conference uh, here in um, um, Tecnológico de Monterrey is to increase the scope of the topics and the areas precisely because of the reasons uh, uh, that uh, both Julie and David emphasized. So uh, one, of the, one of the very hard things to do sometimes uh, in the current political climate, not just in the United States, but in many countries in the world, is uh, to talk about the complexity of problems and how we uh, have to avoid uh, simple solutions that emphasize just political will or individual ideas or certainties actually, um, uh, and how, how, how much uh, these solutions tend to actually run counter to what uh, more nuanced, uh, complex, coherent uh, um, uh, alternatives are. And I think it is obvious that the problems are really very complex, uh, but uh, through these methods, we can actually not just engage stake stakeholders, but add up uh, different levels and kinds of uncertainties uh, that are probably essential, not just to the types of problems that we're typically dealing with, like, dealing with, like climate and water and uh, decarbonization and things like that, uh, uh, but even to address issues, for example, like political reform. I mean, it's not just a matter of the United States or Mexico or other countries uh, or the, the European Union and so on and so forth, but uh, there will be some time in which we might think, uh, again, whether the kinds of political institutions that we have are conducive to the kinds of outcomes that we have right now. Let me pose the question a different way. Is the kind of uh, polarization phenomenon that we are facing in a society like the United States or Mexico or Brazil or yeah. Great Britain and so on and so forth, is it a 1% probability scenario considering what's happening? Uh, what types of, uh, of uh, political systems or uh, uh, recommendations for reform should we address uh, considering the two different maps of Africa that were shown to us, uh, are there political institutions that are bound to be slightly more resilient and right. uh, maybe cause political turmoil, but at least address issues of uh, social strife, uh, economic um, hardships and uh, just human losses more effectively than others? I think this is a path for a more um, uh, comprehensive analysis of the kinds of issues that at some point uh, some uh, coalitions of uh, leadership uh, with international institutions, politicians, and so on and so, so forth are going to look back at academia and say, okay, what are we going to do now? And, and if we do not have at least a hint of, uh, of ways to address this, uh, then we're going to lose uh, massive opportunities uh, uh, and maybe get out of these very complex scenarios uh, as quickly as possible. This this has come up in many, many ways in my reporting through the last 10 years at the Times and in the conversations I've been running on this webcast, which is um, this tension between sort of centralized or coordinated responses and distributed, uh, flexible, adaptive capacities. And I keep thinking, there was a guy, Heriberto Cabezas, some sustainability analyst, very mathematical guy who gave a presentation in New York City at a meeting on civilization and climate five years ago when the Pope was in town for the sustainability, the um, UN uh, SDGs. And he gave this really compelling presentation of the very sophisticated model of the world. And he said, uh, his conclusion was that uh, coordinated manipulation of six variables is required to get us through the next 200 years. 
And I'm hearing these words, coordinated manipulation, six variables, you know, thinking about like some kind of board and some master controller. And then thinking about the nature of the world. And of course, with data now, observation capacity expanding, uh, you know, the capacity for like a distributed way to have an intelligent management system feels more compelling, more realistic. Is that part of what you're describing? Maybe a little bit more from Alejandro and then back to Julie. I think that's one of the questions that we need to address, but even more, more, uh, uh, slightly more humbly, <laughs> uh, not to think of just the particular uh, 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 levers that we have to move uh, to address this issue. But I think at some point, uh, even in countries like the United States with a degree of polarization that we have, and I use that example, but Mexico is exactly the same case. Uh, on the one hand, you have people just emphasizing science, science, science. And on the other hand, just emphasizing uh, the people have spoken and I can, can interpret what they're saying. And then it's at some point, uh, uh, newly elected officials in Congress, uh, in state level offices, uh, appointees uh, to agencies that deal with water, conservation, energy, so on and so forth. Um, they need, um, if not the six uh, variables that will solve the problem for the next 200 years, uh, some sense of, okay, these are your alternatives. These are much more likely to be productive uh, considering the kinds of challenges that we're going to face in terms of the future of work, in terms of uh, climate change, in terms of migration, in terms of political polarization in and of itself as something that might actually render some of the solutions that we're thinking about ineffective. Uh, and I think it is important that we understand and take stock of that. Um, uh, uh, I wouldn't be so so brave as to claim that we will discover those six variables or take this paper and develop it. But at the very least, <clears throat> for example, to, to what extent are federal uh, setups uh, more likely or not to produce uh, certain types of outcomes of things that we actually care about and that might uh, make a huge difference in terms of uh, human suffering. And if we have these federal institutions do we have some set of frameworks that are likely to be more productive uh, in the short or mid run, uh, considering the, that we really don't know in which type of uh, scenario we're living uh, in, uh, or we'll, in particular, we're going to be living in in the next 10 or 20 years, no? Yeah, uh, and Julie, you know, the World Bank, the UN um, governance as we know it in most countries, has that, I don't know if I want to call it reflexive, um, the norms, the path dependency is around a more methodical risk-based decision-making process and not letting things just kind of flow unless I'm missing some trend. Um, so does this feel like the biggest hurdle here is simply breaking old path-dependent structures around us and how these decisions are made? Um, yes and no. I think there's still value in planning somehow because in a lot of countries um, I work with, there's even there's there's no team in place to do any kind of plan before making decisions or investments, and and there is value in ma in making those plans. But I think the process that needs to be followed to put in place those plans has to change. It's not the way it used to be. Is um, the World Bank gets money from some donors to help the country pay for plans. And the way it works is that with this money, they hire consultants from other countries 
who come spend a week in the country and, and come back with an optimal investment plan. Uh, that, that doesn't work well with deep uncertainty. It doesn't work well for a lot of different reasons. Um, and what I really like about the MDU methods is the, the fact that it needs to include a lot of stakeholders from the beginning. And that the, the experts that could come from other countries or from the country that come and help make the decisions are here to learn from the stakeholders before they bring their models. And uh, one of my favorite projects was in Mozambique, where we worked with the road utilities um, on investment prioritization for roads in the poorest areas of the country. And um, we built this kind of sophisticated network model to try to put the roads in the best places. And we had a series of workshops with local stakeholders. And some people were able to point mistakes in our models. They say, no, I don't believe that result is possible. And we went back to the model and realized, yes, there was a problem with the data when we calibrated it. And so we changed the model. The results was much more in line with what stakeholders had in mind. And it really helped the discussion. And then without the model, then it's all about people's preferences. So it's good to have both because it used to be if you involve people, it's the one that yells the loudest that ends up making the decision. But if you can, if you bring a model to bring everyone's point of view in, and then you can discuss the results and have some sort of like science involved, um, it it makes the whole process much more transparent, interesting, and and robust. And everyone in the end agrees that we've probably made the best decision based on information available. And it's not that hard to do. I mean. Yeah, um, Ernesto Eduardo, who's involved with the meeting, has just posted on Twitter a, um, a uh, distributed <laughs> sort of an illustration of what you were talking about here a few minutes ago. Uh, whoops. Let's see if I'll leave it. At, oh, what? It's loading weird. I'll wait for that to load. We'll get back to it. Um, I guess, like, if you had a big, powerful computer and you could do play with it in different ways. One way is modeling, well, simulation, right? One way would be assessing, as David was saying, cross-comparing models. Then another way might be to just use a computer com computation, whether it's AI or um, creating a de decision space um, to actually just facilitate the conversation. Um, I know ASU, Arizona State, where I've spent a lot of time over the years, you know, they have a decision theater concept where it's more, um, it's more, I guess, scenario-based in a sense, as, as David was saying. And, I, I, you know, as we head toward these last 20 minutes here, we could go a little longer. I wanted to get at sort of what, at the scale question, which is such a, an enormous one when it comes to, uh, you think about all the questions you're raising about water management, they exist at every scale. They exist at the scale of local municipalities. Here in New York City, the reservoirs encompass a 2,000 square mile area upstate. Um, so to scale, I think we're going to rely on some kind of computation or online capacity anyway. So what would be your votes? Um, you know, if you for X amount of computer power, how much of it goes into modeling the systems? How much it goes into facilitating conversation? Well, maybe I can take take a first crack at this. I, I think, you know, Julie and, and Andy, you're both getting to one of the key 
tenets of, of DMDU, which is you know using models in different ways. So rather than just taking as much computing power as you have and generating the most precise answer or prediction that you can, um, we often talk about it as supporting a, a, a process of deliberation with analysis, meaning you know, we're using the models and the analysis not to tell us what the answer is, but rather to support a deliberation with all these people in this in this tweet you're showing here. You know, the model is kind of the, you know, the, the mechanism for providing a set of facts and a set of trade-offs and visualizations, interaction, you know, uh, and, 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 and then, but then it's the people that, that engage with that and to derive meaning and come up with those, you know, you know, uh, unique and, and um, you know, novel solutions to the problem. So, you know, in any given DMDU study, there certainly is a lot of energy and time that goes into doing a traditional modeling activity, you know, figuring out, taking data that we have, building the mathematical construct and, and, and generating something that can provide additional insight into how the system might perform. But I would say that, you know, in terms of um, the importance of how those how that's used, I think it's, it's, it could be 50, 50, right? You got to, you know, you have to represent the model, use the model to represent the system in many ways and keep track of all those different possible ways the system could, could roll out. But then we need to use the computing power and the models to then present the information to stakeholders and, and decision makers in a way that they can understand. And the decision theater at ASU that you presented that um, actually Tech de Monterey has a decision theater now too. Um, and, and, you know, the, this is one model for this, you know, this deliberation with analysis, it's, you know, a little bit, fo I mean, it's focused on one location, of course, because the decision theater doesn't move on wheels generally, although right. there are some very variants that do. Um, but I think that, you know, this, uh, you know, the transformations in the way that we work, you know, in due to COVID, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has, has, I think, opened our eyes to the, the real possibility to doing this in a much more distributed way. And, and I'll close with just saying one of the, the efforts that I'm working on in, in, um, in Chile with um, funding from the Inter-American Development Bank, there, you know, we did a series of remote workshops, you know, using, you know, a Zoom equivalent and virtual whiteboarding. And, and we were able to get, you know, 50 to 100 stakeholders you know, very, very deeply involved and engaged in a discussion about decarbonization issues in Chile, and now we can take now you know me being you know the, the the team that I'm working with that does more of the modeling. Now we can take all that input, crunch the numbers, and then come back to them. And I think you know it's going to be a lot of new models are going to emerge from you know this big disruption from uh, COVID nineteen. Yeah, I've been wondering about that. We we had a session here with the Atlantic Council's Geotech um, Center, a new thing. Um, can we build sort of an immune system for the planet? Meaning where you have a, a digital capacity to really be gauging emerging viral threats using data. And there's a, a scientist at BU, Boston University, she was tracking like parking lot capacity in China, coming and going and coming and going as a way to gauge there's something going on in, in that hospital. Um, it just seems totally plausible to me that we can, and who the we is, is a big question. Uh, we can fast track some of these options. So you have a higher sensitivity, responsiveness, you know, AI or using computer machine learning to help where it's needed and human interaction where that's needed. Uh, it feels like that's so much more doable than it was 10 years ago. 
I, I, I don't know, but, but you know, everyone looks at the downsides yeah. of all this connectivity right now. We're focused on disinformation and and um, the polarization and confusion through connectedness. Um, but I think that we're missing some of that bigger picture stuff. And again, maybe Alejandro and then Julie. Yeah, no. Uh, what I was going to say is that uh, some of the some of the investments that I think we still need to make are uh, um, on leadership training, uh, and I think it is it is critical because most of the typical training that uh, most students get at um, policy schools uh, is heavily emphasized on tools that were probably very useful for the last uh, the previous century. You know basic micro and macroeconomics, policy analysis, uh, political institutions, uh, political... And I th I'm not saying that those are not important. Those are crucial. But I think it is also very important that we understand that we have uh, much more significant uh, tools uh, to understand how many of these things interact with each other simultaneously and how we are actually facing some existential threats uh, because those models were only able to predict or to apply to very specific segments of uh, our area of expertise. And just like you said, Andy, now we have uh, the kinds of uh, computational uh, tools and the kinds of data uh, capabilities and the kinds of uh, analytical models that allow us to engage in a much more uh, difficult, actually, but um, comprehensive uh, uh, intellectual uh elaboration of, of what the alternatives are and what those implications are. But it's not just important that students have uh, this, this wider and deeper set of tools. Uh, that's also insufficient. The other side, I think, of, uh, of leadership training is um, to develop the kinds of skills to explain these solutions, uh, not just to stakeholders, which actually are going to benefit directly from a better solution than not, uh, uh, but actually uh, to stakeholders who might actually have to pay bigger costs in the short run, uh, but also to ready these uh, leaders of today and tomorrow uh, to build coalitions around the types of uh, uh, argumentation and solutions that we're going to be developing. One of the key things about these uh, solutions is that they have to be robust, not just in a technical sense to changes in the environment and uh, to different uncertainties that are out there, but they, they, they ideally should be politically robust. And this does not mean to guarantee that there's going to be this very tight framework that is going to force people to always do. No, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, politically robust means that um, we're going to develop the types of leaders that are actually going to be uh, deliberating about these, uh, building bridges with other allies, uh, incorporating a, a nuanced uh, analysis of these things, training people about what the stakes are and actually uh, be responsive to short-term demands from the population, from specific actors, uh, without losing the big picture of what it is that we're trying to achieve, uh, but do that in a, in a democratic setting. That is much tougher. Uh, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to, to, to engaging in this because that's actually what's going, what's going to allow all of our abilities to use artificial intelligence, all of our abilities to use these kinds of methods uh, in, a, in a much more productive and much more um, uh, substantive way. And, uh, uh, and I think that's why I am really thrilled about this, uh, this particular conference, uh, because we are actually making this effort to start a dialogue between 
you know, classical political scientists uh, and classical economist, economists and, uh, and uh, this much more multidisciplinary uh, field, uh, which I think is uh, really powerful and um, uh, really effective uh, in, in its tools. Yeah, I was looking at the, um, at the agenda and I, I think also education has to be in the mix too. In other words, breaking some of our path dependency and how we yep. teach. The, this came up in another show here the other day, just the other day. I'll just show you a little bit of it because it's worth it. Um, my wife used to be a science teacher. She now teaches teachers how to teach, but she, they did this uh, bridge. It's sort of a familiar exercise where kids get the, um, I'll leave the sound off because it's really loud. <laughs> But you can see uh, kids build bridges using a standardized batch of wood. And they had to, what was interesting about this particular uh, iteration was they, it's frozen. So, all right. They um, had to do a cost benefit analysis as part of their, it wasn't just build a bridge with a kit. It was, you had to pay for the wood with fantasy money. And you then judge the performance of the bridge, not just based on whether it broke or not, but on the, uh, on the, uh, the, the, the fuller dimensions of the project. And boy, I think if that could be incorporated in every curriculum, that kind of thing. So breakage, learning through breaking, as opposed to our more stringent success-oriented um, education, feels like it could create a culture over time, obviously. <laughs> that's more uh, comfortable with, with uncertainty and risk and everything that comes with it. There was, there was a, a piece in nature a long time ago. Uh, do we need to go to risk school as a, as a, as a species essentially? <laughs> and that feels again, apt as well. I, I wanted to run through some of the questions that have come in on the, uh, sorry, on the um, commentary here. This one here, Alec Bernstein, maybe at the conference. Politicians don't want to hear about uncertainty, especially when allocating appropriations for funding infrastructure, for funding infrastructure. I'm thinking of water and wastewater plants, which are underfunded in the US. How can we get past the uncertainty to persuade decision makers to act? I mean, you've kind of addressed a little bit of this. Um, it sounds like engagement in the process of the scenarios. Like Julie was saying, feels really important because then they're sort of really understanding the dynamics of what they're looking at, Is unless there's another answer to that question. Well, I could say that, um, I mean, I mean, yes, engagement and, you know, education helps, but I think also that the kind of, the kind of solution that you're proposing um, can also go a long way. So one of the key aspects of a robust solution is it's describing what you do today that that is makes sense regardless of how uncertainty unfolds. So you can actually present those near-term actions to then they stand on their own. You don't have to, you know, you you learn about what the which what they are by looking at the uncertainty out into the future. But once you resolve that, they they'll sell themselves because they tend to be common sense and, and make a lot of sense from a lot of perspectives. So that that's maybe one way to move away from paralysis of uncertainty. And that, and again, that's what the DMD methods are really trying to do. So you literally just in asking the questions and saying, okay, here's the scenarios. How did that do? You're, you're basically con concretizing what that mix looks like. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and I think it's also the case that uh, even if the, uh, uh, 
the, the short-term incentives are tough, uh, are very hard to, to overcome. Uh, if the narrative of what the, the, the models actually produce is compelling, uh, then you're actually going to show uh, uh, invested politicians that even the short-term scenario in which they probably get more money uh, uh, is likely not to be a good outcome scenario for other stakeholders. And this engagement that you're talking about, Andy, uh, will actually uh, increase the costs of them uh, act uh, acting in a short-sighted manner. That's why I think uh, training in leadership and other types of skills is crucial, uh, because otherwise they're just going to, going to you know, shred the plan or, or, or delete the plan and just say, yeah, well, uh, it's going to be tough for the next 10 years, but in the short run, I'm still going to put more money into this particular dam or this particular uh, project. No? And uh, hold on, let me take this off the screen because it's too big. Um, the other, well, this is also, it sounds like this might have value. Like if we're having a congressional hearing in the US, which is always posturing and everyone has his expert or her expert, but by running a, having a scenario approach to a hearing, for example, would reveal special interests, it sounds like, because it's saying, well, these are actually objectively, this is what the range of outcomes could be from this bridge. And even though you're, yeah. you want, you want solution X because you're from the bridge making company, this is the reality. It, it feels like it's a, yeah. it's a transparency or honesty exercise too. To, yeah. I mean, why not? Sorry. I mean, one of the main outputs from this kind of analysis is understanding what assumptions do you need to believe for a particular solution to make sense. And, and, and it's, it's the, these methods are designed to illuminate that on, on purpose because, you know, you can often, if you can find things that are, that make sense under different assumptions, then you can get agreement. And so. The um, generally that that particular idea that you can create kind of an honesty landscape as well which of course in all of these arenas you've got lobbying and pressures and assertions by groups especially when there's uncertainty because i find i've found as a reporter it's almost like a rule of thumb for me almost like a law of physics uh, an abundance of uncertainty leads to a, an abundance of points of view <laughs> Because the, the gray space, everybody can make their case in there. But this feels like a way to kind of cut through some of that, which seems really encouraging to me. Uh, Joshua Snyderman has a comment here. And thank you again for being part of this today, all of you. The uncertainty of jobs in the fossil fuel industry in the future concern uh, certain segments of society. I often wonder if we talk more about clean energy technology and 21st century green energy futures and less about climate change would there be much more public support? Jobs, jobs, judge, which would lead to faster, robust climate solutions. I can see several ways that that fits into some of the decision-making dynamics you're talking about. Yeah, would... yeah I, I... go ahead, Julie. No, I've been talking, go ahead. Yeah, Julie. I was gonna say, it's interesting because um, working in low and middle income countries um i work with a lot of countries that don't really care about climate change mitigation they don't feel like it's for them to do first they're waiting for um china who's not a, a rich country but high income countries like europe and the us but even china as well to first reduce their emissions and then they'll see what they'll do about it but actually that's a risky strategy 
because they're right now investing in their energy and transport systems. And those are decisions that will have consequences for the next 50 years. It will lock them into certain kinds of development patterns. And so the argument is not you should care about climate change and about reducing your emissions, but the argument is you're going to be stuck with the technologies of yesterday when the richer countries are going to have the new technologies where all the innovation is, is going and where all the productivity gains are going and maybe the new jobs are going. The job story is another one because then we talk about automatization and, and all of that. But, um, but still, I think the competitiveness and, and productivity story is much stronger than the you need to be part of a climate coalition story. And it is yeah. a risk not to follow the the trend, the decarbonization trend. Yeah, and one of the one of the ways that DMDU helps is it says, look, we can when we frame the frame the analysis, we can think more about be, think beyond just in reducing emissions, but we can also think about economics and jobs, and and then do an analysis so that. Um, you can determine are there strategies that are good for the climate and lead to decarbonization, but that also have great job benefits. And you know, and, and we know this that the you know a transition to a you know renewable energy is actually a big job creator. So so I think uh, to the commenter's point, uh, you know, reframing things a little bit around jobs can be very useful for this particular uh, type of decision. Sure. And I think another point that is made about this is that uh, these are methods for making decisions. So one of the things that, I mean, it's obvious that we've, we've said it before, but I want to emphasize that uh, these methods, this framework uh, uh, highlights the alternatives rather clearly that individuals are facing at the point in which they actually have to choose an investment portfolio, a type of decision that they have to do on, uh, I don't know, water policy, energy policy in particular, and um, they also highlight different sets of outcomes, not just one dependent variable, as uh, academics want to uh, like to speak about, but also sets of outcomes that are interrelated uh, and that provide actually uh, uh, a way in which to address, just like David and Julie were saying, um, uh, uh, different uh, uh, discourses and narratives that might be uh, more productive for uh, public discourse and for uh, um, uh, support for some of these measures, and I think uh, uh, there's an effort in translation. The, the I mean, there's it's, it's not as simple. And as you know, Andy, uh, having uh, uh, come to this field from different perspectives, uh, there is a little bit of a, of a hurdle to understand. But I think you're a great translator of uh, what these methods are actually able to do and the kinds of opportunity that they provide. I still think. Yeah, journalists, we have to come up with uh, new ways to uh, normalize description of uncertainty and um, even whether it's color coding or, or, or something so that people understand the initial uh, state of, of knowledge in certain points of, especially when things are intense, like when the pandemic was emerging, there were all kinds of hypotheses and misinterpretations about early signals, you know, that London model that got so, so um, misused really, because everyone's grasping for the thing. And journalists, we just go from one news nugget to the next, as opposed to stepping back and doing what Murray Gelman suggested, and taking a crude look at the whole. It's like we don't have time to do that anymore. Like, so we're we're uh, kind of cl at the close here. I wanted to, to 
spend the last few minutes talking about what Julie mentioned at the very beginning when you were talking about applying these principles to your own life. I don't want to make it just about the person or the family, but at the small scale of a town or, or a company um, or for individuals, is there a, is there a hand, is there like a little wallet card <laughs> summary? What are the first steps? Like if you're immersed in one of these consequential moments, do you already have your kind of uh, mental checklist? One, what do I know? What does that feel like? Maybe Julie, I don't know if you have a, a way to summarize a little bit of that for the average person or like small business owner or whatever. Yeah, I mean, what I really like about DMDU is the way of the way of thinking about the future in general and is to recognize that you cannot predict what's going to happen and that even if you have predictions available, they're probably completely wrong. Um, so instead of try, instead of focusing on what the future is going to be like or what you want it to be like, focus on what you can do, the options that you have, and how they might perform or not perform in different futures, and and talk about it with other people. Talk about your options because other people will have different points of view about how your decisions will unfold, because they have different visions of the future. And that allows you, like that without any model, with, but just a series of mental models that maybe your friends and family have uh, to come up with a robust decision or at least something you're confident in. And the other one is revise and learn. Realize that your mental model and your preferences probably will change over time. So even if you've made a decision at one point in your life, it doesn't mean that you're not going to change it later. So just be open to flexibility and learning, I think, is also one of the big principles of DMDU. And may I add to that a little bit? Yeah, of course. I would love for each of you to kind of give a final sort of a view of that. Sure. Well, I, I think what Julie just mentioned about the learning is is um, really relevant. I, I was thinking back on sort of my personal and you know family response to COVID over the last nine months. and. You know, I recall talking to my mom, who's of course older and and you know in a higher risk uh, population, and she was uh, you know obviously more concerned about the pandemic in the early days than than I was in, in, with my family in in Colorado. Um, and you know, she was you know very you know suggesting that we get get some masks and wear them. And and I remember early on saying, yeah, yeah, whatever, we're not going to wear masks all around town. Um, but it but it wasn't until you know things got a little bit more serious that then then we you know, my family and I, we start thinking about this from a DMDU perspective. And we're just like, you know, just to what Julie was saying, what can we control? What are, you know, so we started thinking about, well, let's pot up with a couple families. But, you know, the mask really stuck out because it was like, it's like the classic robust, no regret strategy. It's like super low cost. It's not that big of a deal. And it really can avoid some really awful outcomes, you know, meaning getting sick, et cetera. And, and so I, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, applying some of these concepts to our, ordinary decision-making. And, and so as we've been trying to navigate how to get through this COVID pandemic, uh, you know, healthy, um, we draw on, draw on the, the thinking all the time. So, And, and uh, Alejandro, from you too, uh, and I wondered, is, is there a, a rubric on the DMDU website or is there, a, is there yet a curriculum for, let's say, elementary, middle or secondary school for this kind of approach? I'm not sure we have it yet. Andy, I appreciate the challenge that you're posing uh, for something at the elementary level. But I think, yeah, I mean, to understand how these methods are useful, 
we need to get a better hold of how risk uh, influences our lives. And uh, just as a curiosity that uh, you reminded me of is that uh, 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 one of the things that I worked on in my bachelor's degree, uh, an undergraduate thesis, uh, was a senior thesis that had to deal, had to do with uh, how voters assess the uncertainty of alternative uh, outcomes, which was crucial, of course, back in the day in authoritarian Mexico. I mean, you have uh, better the devil you know than the one you don't. And I think it was very hard to get a, an academic uh, uh, and also a public opinion sense of what these uh, uh, predispositions towards uncertainty meant. Uh, and I think uh, I, I just want to emphasize your point about how uh, we really need to keep on working on our ability to understand it better, uh, but also to convey it better uh, to publics that are crucial for uh, uh, better decision making, more robust decision making, and uh, um, with a very clear uh, uh, conscious, uh, consciousness that the world is only getting more complex, more challenging, and to a certain extent, much more uncertain. And I think uh, we really need to retrain ourselves and retrain uh, uh, our environment uh, as effectively and quickly as possible. Yeah, here's one of the signs I created to put on tweets, tweets sometimes. It's really for my own sake, uh, recognizing our own limitations. Um, I did a show the other day in which we were talking about ex exponential growth and how we, we know we don't get that as a species. Way back, Dan Kahneman in a New Yorker podcast interview in April or May, said he got this pandemic totally wrong. Here's Dan Kahneman, the guy who has done more to clarify risk and decision-making, you know, psychology, how we do, do and don't make good decisions. He said he hadn't really grasped the exponential realities that were unfolding. He almost flew to Europe right at the very beginning. And he said the reason he didn't go had nothing to do with being a DMDU, uh, you know, analyst or whatever. So I think we all have a lot of work to do. And I, I think maybe uh, what I'd like to do in these shows is try to find a, a new action point going forward. And it sure feels like we've identified an opportunity there. Uh, Columbia has Teachers College. Uh, there's a sustainability group there. And um, I'm in touch with ASU all the time about stuff there. So maybe we can try to work on a entry-level entry curriculum for the average person uh, on how to navigate better using some of these principles. Thank you all for being here today. I just want to um, close by showing a couple of last slides about where we go from here. And if you have any last uh, thoughts, be, but if you think we can work on that together uh, once your meeting is over, that would be great. Sounds fantastic. Yes, um, I think it's great. Yeah, I think I think that is a great uh, great task or challenge. Um, you know, we. We do it at very. We, we struggle with this at various levels. Even just taking the very complex methods and distilling it down to, you know, so that uh, you know, the water agency or you know, some some government agency can can use it in their in their practice. But what you're talking about is taking it to the next level. To how, how can it help uh, individuals and groups of people to think more critically about uncertainties and and respond appropriately? And I think that would be really useful. So I like it. I think we can do better than the dice game. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I like and I think it's crucial for engineering and economists curriculums because, um, yeah, I mean, I I studied engineering and economics, and and both are they just have very normative ways of thinking about the future and 
and they want if there's uncertainty there's always a probability distribution and and, and i think it's not working that anymore. seems pretty so, clear definitely the world is not yeah. linear <laughs> not linear we just circled back to 1918 right yeah so um okay uh, thank you again let me just show this closing slide and um which i was trying to do so on this was today and on friday uh, we're going to do a session on a very relevant subject. The presumptive Biden administration faces a huge challenge, not just in rebuilding a science-based decision-making process for government, but in thinking about building forward. Can we break some of the old norms for how science advice has filtered into decision-making? We'll have Neil Lane on, who's the former uh, White House science advisor to Bill Clinton, uh, Rod Schoonover from the National Intelligence Council, uh, previous, uh, uh, and Romany Webb from Columbia's Climate Law Center, and Naomi Oreskes has written enormously influential books on the history of science and the history of misinformation and, and more. Uh, so I hope folks can tune, tune in on Friday. And we go forward from there. Every few days, we have another session here. Sustain What is a global online conversation identifying solutions to the complicated, shape-shifting, and epic challenges of humanity's great acceleration. A prime focus is making sense of and getting the most out of the planet's fast-forward information environment. It's the one Earth system changing faster than the actual environment. It has wondrous properties, which are allowing us to connect today, all from all around the world. It has huge problems. It's designed to distract and confuse us almost as much as to connect us. Uh, it's part of this is part of my work building Columbia University's Earth Institute initiative on communication and sustainability. Basically, how do we make information and connectivity matter is my challenge of the this final chunk of my uh, existence on the planet. As soon as we're done, share the link you've been watching with friends, watching on with friends far and wide. These all get archived right away and get in touch with ideas. See that distracting scrolling bar at the bottom for how to do that. Thank you to my guests today for being here, Julia, David, and Alejandro, and good luck with the rest of the meeting. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Sustain What? A production of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at Columbia University's Climate School. If you like, send your feedback or ideas for future shows to j.mp slash sustainwhatfeedback. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe and build a better world. Mm -hmm.